Good morning, First Baptist. I've, uh, <clears throat> I've got some bad news. Did you know that we're becoming an angrier, more selfish, and more impatient group of people? I'm not getting any arguments on that. <laughs> Actually, a book that came out in 2014 by Elias Abujad called Virtually You said that our time on the Internet is shaping us all in a more negative way uh, in how we relate to each other and, and even in how we conduct ourselves. As a matter of fact, he says about this book, he says the psychological costs that we're paying for our collective love affair with technology is heavy. Normally, we mature and continue to grow by learning to delay gratification, but the Internet's having the opposite effect. We're wanting gratification more and more immediately. As we mature, we should be living within a moral framework, but that's deteriorating as well as respect for other people. He says maturity involves learning to control aggressive impulses, but in the wild west of the Internet, none of that's happening. Things are becoming worse. And he says the anonymous narcissistic culture of the new social media produces what he calls ordinary, everyday viciousness. It's very easy to get on the Internet and put out opinions that we oftentimes wouldn't if we were talking to someone face-to-face. -face. And he likes to tell ourselves, he said that we like to tell ourselves that we can move kind of nimbly from this environment online into our everyday lives. But he's saying this transition really doesn't happen the way that we think it does. And our character doesn't transition like we oftentimes think that it will. And he goes on to say this. I see my book as my attempt at dissecting this thing called an e-personality. The changes that happen in our personalities when we go online, the new traits that we take on, what I see more and more, we are starting to resemble our avatars or our online personas. See, what we love is shaping us. Uh, as a matter of fact, this past week, Tim Keller posted uh, this question on the Internet. On the, on the Internet. <laughs> See where I go. <laughs> I'm guilty. <laughs> he said, how do you change your behavior? He said, you change what you worship. See, the things that we love, the things that we spend our time on, are the things that we ascribe worth to. And the word worship itself could be more fully called worth, worthship. We worship those things to which we ascribe worth, and those things are shaping us. And the question that I want to raise as a result of this, actually the subject I want to talk about today, is how then, with all the distractions and things we enjoy, can we worship Christ? In the middle of a season like this, in the middle of Christmas, with everything that's going on, how can we keep our eye on what's truly important, worshiping Jesus Christ? How can He be the most shaping force in our lives. And the passage we're going to look at this morning comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. We're talking about the wise men today. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. 
Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. You may be seated. We're continuing this, this morning, this series that we're in right now, about this cast of characters in the Christmas narratives. Throughout the gospel, we have these different people showing up. This morning, we're focusing on the wise men. And by the way, I'll say at the outset, there's a lot of things that we've come to believe about the wise men that aren't necessarily true. Uh, for example, we assume there were three. The Greek Orthodox Church actually holds that there were 12. The reason we think there were three is because they provided three gifts, and also that they showed up right there in the manger scene. I mean, all the nativity scenes can't be wrong, can they? They actually came a couple of years after Christ was born. And going into this this morning, I want to look at three things. This journey that they have, this journey they set out on. First of all, it started with faith. It continued with sacrifice and worship. And then after we talk about those two things, I want to apply some of that truth to us and answer the question, well, how should we then worship our king, Jesus Christ? So let's jump into this now, and I'm going to start with those very first two verses that we read, um, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men... Rather, just wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This is one of the most mysterious passages in the entire Bible. And I've read it. You know, I went to seminary and interrogated professors on this. I've read article after article. How these guys knew that this star meant that Jesus was in Israel is very, very mysterious. How did they make that correlation? How did they know it was his star? And let me just talk about these guys for a minute. They're called, they're called magi. Uh, that's the, the Greek term. And that usually had a negative connotation with it. These guys were sort of considered uh, fortune tellers and, and soothsayers and uh, practice occultic type things. And, 
they were magicians. As a matter of fact, that word magi is where we get the word magic. And uh, it was unclear exactly who they were. Now, there were a positive spin on some of these guys. Uh, some of them were just considered to be possessors and users of supernatural knowledge and ability. And if you go into the Old Testament, you'll see the prophet Daniel, because he was enabled by God to interpret uh, some of the dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He set Daniel over his own group of Babylonian magi and priests. As a matter of fact, that could be where these wise men got this knowledge of some kind of a messianic expectation among the Jews. It could have been that Daniel shared these things with them. And exactly where these guys came from is also a mystery. You know, it says they came from the east. Well, if you look at a map, there's a lot east. Uh, it could have been that they were Persians or Babylonians. Babylon is modern-day Iraq. Persia is modern-day Iran. They had a great interest in astrology and the stars at that time, so they would have known if something different would have appeared. So these men followed a star. And again, how they knew that this star meant that the king of the Jews was going to be in Israel, I don't know. It's, it's mysterious. But they certainly believed it. And these three non-Jews who picked up the information somewhere of a Jewish expectation of a king were able to put these pieces together. And then they show up. They knew enough to head to Jerusalem. And it seems that when they got there, they just kind of like started asking random people questions. Hey, where's this king, right? There was a, we heard there was a king born. As a matter of fact, we saw the star, so we're showing up. Could you just sort of point out where he is? And that news got around. Um, and eventually it made its way to Herod. But I can't help but notice the great faith that these men had. They stepped out of a foreign land with just sort of what they knew. They didn't have all the pieces together. And God used their own worldview, giving them a sign, some kind of sign in the stars that he had been born, Jesus Christ. You see, God can use any number of ways to lead people to Jesus. Only one way to heaven. It's only through Christ that we gain our way to heaven, but many, many ways that lead to Jesus. As a matter of fact, I was just reading uh, about some, some Muslims um, that are being converted. Uh, out of 600 Muslim converts, 25% experienced a dream that led to their conversion. As a matter of fact, another missionary named um, Lilius Trotter reported that dreams were driving Muslims to Christ. And all of us have our own story, right? Maybe we were led to Christ by a parent, a friend, a co-worker. We heard something pertaining to the gospel. Maybe all the facts weren't in there, but it started us on a journey. And it just took a few steps of simple trust. As a matter of fact, there may be people here that by coming to church this morning, you were taking your first, first steps of a faith journey. We come to Christ. We have the information that we have. 
And then we grow, we grow, right? We're discipled. We get more facts as we go along. But at the very beginning, we, we trust in the very bare gospel that the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, took on the sin of humanity, and died on the cross to save us. He paid the penalty in full. Notice there's a lot of topics I didn't bring. I didn't bring up a doctrine of angels in that, did I? Uh, I didn't bring up any great debates in Christianity. I didn't bring up how many uh, angels can dance on the head of a pen. There's a lot that goes in the process of discipleship. But when we take those first few steps to Jesus, the way these wise men did, uh, it starts a journey of faith. And that's what these men were doing. And we continue in this text, and we see that the journey of the wise men continued with sacrifice and worship. When they hit Jerusalem and started asking questions, they, they drew a lot of people's attention. I gather that these men, their attire and such, uh, drew, attention, they drew attention to themselves. Then picking up there in verse 3, uh, we see that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. By the way, when the king's troubled, guess who else is troubled? All Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, Herod was a maniac. He was half Jewish. Uh, he was loyal to the Roman Empire. That's what kept him in power. He was loyal to the Romans. They kept him there. And then the religious leaders... For them to keep their power, they aligned themselves with this maniacal leader. And it kept them in power where they were. And in the final years of Herod's reign, he became increasingly paranoid. And he had ten wives who had several children. And as the sons were born, and he sensed that they were contending for the throne, he'd start having them murdered. He murdered one wife and at least two sons. And there was this Wordplay, this Greek wordplay that was going around in Rome at the time. The uh, Greek word for pig is hiss. The Greek word for son is huios. And Caesar said it's better to be uh, it's better to be Herod's pig, his hiss, than his son, than uh, his huios. Better to be his hiss than his huios. Better to be a pig than his son because the pigs were in less danger. So the presence of these men disturbs him and those around him. So what does he do? He starts gathering up the priests and the prophets, and, and he said, look, tell me again about this prophecy about Jesus. Where is he to be born? And they say, well, in Micah 5, 2, he's, he's to be born in Bethlehem. So he can't tolerate honor paid to any other king. So then in verse 7 and 8, he tells the wise men, okay, go to Bethlehem. That's where the king is born. Notice he believed the prophecy. It threatened him. Go to Bethlehem. Find out where he is so I can worship him too. It was all lies. Because in verse 16, because he didn't know exactly, we'll find out later in the story that the wise men didn't do what he asked him to, but because he didn't know, he had every child under two years old murdered in Bethlehem just to make sure in his mind that he was going to get the right one. He's the opposite kind of king than Christ. And with all of his power, and he only wanted power, he could not outpower God. As fragile as that situation seemed, he couldn't see the hand of God thwarting his purposes. 
All of those people were blinded to God's redemptive plan in the birth of Christ. So these wise men then proceed to Bethlehem, again led by a star, uh, something bright appearing in the sky. And notice what it says in verses 9 and 10. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were thrilled to get led to the exact home where Jesus was. Now, just stick with me here for a second, because have you ever just stepped out onto your street at night and, and looked up in the sky at all those stars? I mean, light years and light years away. Do you think you could look up and see a star that's over... 1207 Laurel Court versus 1209 Laurel Court. This is, this is probably uh, an angelic being of some kind that's leading them to the home of Jesus. Uh, something bright in the sky that's guiding them there. So it, it could have possibly been an angel. But notice how God is working within the framework of, of these men who may not have had a great revelation of angels, but he's using what they know to lead them to Christ. And what happens? Verses 11 and 12. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Even in all likelihood that at this time they didn't fully understand who Jesus was. Uh, I doubt they understood the hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ. I doubt they understood the Nicene Creed. As a matter of fact, it wouldn't be written for another 300 years. But they knew there was something different here, someone different. And what did they do? They fell down and they worshipped. And they gave these gifts, these expensive items, even... In their ignorance, they knew that Jesus was worth it. And you know, we have so much more reason to worship Christ than they did, don't we? Because we know who Jesus was, that he was fully God and fully man. We know what he did, that he paid for our sins. We have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and yet I would contend that we are infinitely more distracted than these men were. I came across um, something recently about advertising and the advertisements we're subjected to. And advertisers spend millions of, uh, of dollars researching the science of attention. And they say that they only have 6.5 seconds in an ad to grab somebody's attention. And their goal is to capture the consumers. Now, in sermons, I think you have 2.5 seconds to get people's attention. But they want to ensure that we spend six and a half seconds on the product and not the problem. What is quickly grabbing your attention in six and a half seconds? We have this near-infinite appetite for distraction. Um, and maybe Andy Rooney had it right when he said, you know, computers or technology make it easier to do a lot of things but most of the things they make it easier to do don't need to be done. So I want to bring it now to this question of worship. How do we worship 
our King. I believe there are some takeaways uh, from this passage that we're looking at today. Uh, this encounter that the wise men had with Christ and how we can move it into our own lives. And first of all, we need to be aware. We need to be aware. And what do I mean by that? Notice what these wise men ultimately did when they entered the presence of Christ. They fell down and they worshipped. They were aware of what they were doing physically in that moment. They had some sense of who they were with. And then there was a physical response to who that was. There's a verse I want to bring into play here, 1 Corinthians 14, 25. This is speaking of a man who's come to church worshiping for the first time. It says, The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And in this way, he will fall down with his face to the ground and worship God, declaring, God is really among you. Are you carrying something in your heart here this morning that's a distraction to you? You know, I believe that there are some sins that are so discreet that they're discreet even to us. There's a difference between a a blind spot, something that other people around us are aware of that we're not, and a hidden spot that nobody's aware of. You know, I used to work on airplanes before uh, I became a pastor. And when you work on aircraft, they are meticulous about every nut and screw you bring on to a These were all uh, military aircraft fighters and things. They're meticulous about anything that you bring on there. As a matter of fact, uh, an aircraft crashed one time, and you people who are afraid of flying, you're not going to want to hear this. Maybe close your ears. But an aircraft crashed one time because a microscopic nitrogen bubble was in uh, the titanium used that one of the fans were made of. And after about 15,000 takeoffs, finally this fan... Uh, severed hydraulic lines, and they had to, to crash land. Some of the people survived, some didn't. But see, we have sins in our lives that are like that microscopic bubble that until God puts the right amount of pressure on us, we don't know they're there. And they are a distraction even when we don't realize it. We have these flaws, these imperfections, some hidden area. And because of that, self examination and self awareness are so, so important. We have sins in us that that we're not even aware of. So before we come to worship, as a matter of fact, don't think that worship just happens on Sundays. I think that waking up with this attitude of worship is, is a great thing. And I came across a wonderful prayer. This is from the Gospel Coalition. On a good way, I think, to start out our, our Sundays, definitely, but maybe every day of the week, uh, it's this prayer. Gracious Father, I'm not afraid for the secrets in my heart to be laid bare today, to be openly exposed and revealed. For I'm confident that you won't deal with me according to my sin, but according to the unsearchable riches of the gospel. Otherwise, I would surely fear and despair of such exposure, for in the gospel we find the generosity and kindness of your heart laid bare and poured out on us. Because of Jesus... You welcome rebels, fools, and idolaters just like me into your presence. Our sins don't preclude us from worship. But we certainly don't want the obstacles there. We confess our sins and we depend on the grace that God gives us. So be aware. Be aware of the sins that we don't even know are there before we fall down and worship God. 
be aware of your sin. And then secondly, be inclusive. Be inclusive. You know, the gospel is for everybody. These three wise men were a picture of the inclusive plan of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It started in Jerusalem, but was going to extend out to the whole world. I think that's one of the reasons we may not know exactly where these guys came from. We just know they came from somewhere else. The gospel was going to go everywhere else, and it's going everywhere else. And this communal gathering we do is for everybody. We welcome everybody into our doors, regardless of any background, any of their personal issues, their politics, socioeconomic background. We've all got our particular set of issues. We've all got our particular set of politics. But we're inclusive. You may have noticed we moved a welcome desk out to the front of our church. That's intentional because we want people to be welcome and welcomed in. And first-time people, we'll know that you're so, we're so happy that you're here. Um, we want to move people. As a matter of fact, we're hiring someone to move people from first-time visitors to family. I'm stealing that from Melody Anderson. She came up with that line. I didn't. And I came across a paragraph that really moved me. It was in a book from Charles Swindoll. Uh, I, I don't know where he found it, but it compares. Now, just don't throw anything at me. It compares the local bar to the church. And it says this. The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit that there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality. But it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. I'm reminded of that song from Cheers. You want to go where everybody knows your name, right? He says it is unshockable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others even if they want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and to be known. To love and to be loved. So many people seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. With all my heart, this writer concludes, I believe that Christ wants his church to be unshockable, a fellowship where people can come in and say, I'm sunk, I'm beat, I've had it. Alcoholics Anonymous has this quality, by the way. And oftentimes our churches seem to miss it. Now, before you shoot the messenger, there's a few questions here I just want to follow up with. Um, when a, if a woman discovers her husband is a practicing homosexual, where in the church can she find help where she's secure with her secret? If your mate talks about separation and divorce, who do you tell it to? If your daughter is pregnant, she's run away for the third time, she's no longer listening to you or anybody else, who are you going to share that with? You lost your job and it was your fault. You blew it, so there's shame mixed with unemployment. Who do you tell that to? Could we have a body of people that have an attitude of inclusivity so that anybody with any of these issues could come in our doors and we'd wrap our arms around them and say, you know what, we're glad you're here. Welcome to this body of sinners just like me. We want to be inclusive. We want to have this attitude of inclusivity in the body of Christ. And then finally, be sacrificial. Be sacrificial to God and, and others, to Christ and others. 
we saw these gifts that these wise men brought. Um, they, were, they were given out of a sense of love and devotion to someone they didn't even fully get yet. But they believed that Christ the King was worthy of these things. What does God want from you right now? Is there a time or a talent or a treasure that you're sort of hoarding to yourself? And I want to suggest a different kind of sacrifice. And I want, I want to suggest to you to adopt a self-sacrificing kind of giving. And you, I, want to, I want us to do an experiment, okay? Now, you can do this in any kind of, of relationship you're in. The, the, the experiment, as I'm going to lay it out, is sort of geared towards a married couple. However, you could do it with a friend. You could, uh, you could practice this with somebody else in your house. Um, an adult child or someone. But it, it goes like this. Here's the, here's the experiment. You see, most marriages and relationships, they're in a constant state of tug of war. So it's two people pulling against each other to get their needs met. And the only way the pulling stops is when you reach this state of equilibrium where both people are pulling equally hard. And the, and the thing about that is it just wears people out. And you can become exhausted in some couples and will throw in the towel when it gets to that point. So here, here's the experiment. Instead of tugging, couples can focus just on giving to each other. Now here's how it looks. Commit for just one month to doing this. Ask how each can meet the other person's needs. Okay? And when you do that, you give to the other person without being asked. Now, the point here is to reach a new kind of equilibrium or tension to where instead of like pulling apart from each other, you're starting to lean against each other. And you're resting against each other instead of pulling against each other. You know, there's this great scene out of Forrest Gump where he and his friend Bubba, they're out there, they're in those rice paddies in Vietnam, and what does Bubba say? Forrest, you just lean against me and I'll lean against you. And we can keep our heads from getting in the water. So this is what we're looking for. It's about getting your own needs. Get your own needs. That's not, I didn't say that right. It's about getting your own needs by receiving and not demanding. You're not asking someone to give you your needs. You're receiving what they're giving you. So it's about waking up in the morning and asking this question. What does he or she need today that I can supply? What does he or she need today that I can supply? You know, couples that have done this have been shocked at the results. I was reading about a pastor that did this in his church. Um, wives were willing to give their husbands time to go play basketballs with their buddy, buddies or whatever they want to do, or go hunting or whatever it may be, because they were so willing to jump in and do everything else. And vice versa. This is the kind of, of grace and love that takes couples out of tension and brings them together in this, this equilibrium of grace, you could call it. So this, try, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this myself. You can hold me accountable to this. Um, try it for one month and, and see how it goes. Stop tugging. And then offer each other this sort of sacrificial love and worship. And that's, I want to bring this together with this phrase, worship Christ with self-awareness 
inclusion, and sacrifice. How we treat each other has a lot to do with how we are loving Christ. It oftentimes starts in our homes before it comes into the church. I want to close with this great story. It's told by a man named O. Henry uh, about a, a couple that was showing each other this kind of love. Um, it starts with a young woman whispering a prayer that went like this. Please, God, make him think I'm still pretty. Her name was Della, and she had just cut off all of her hair. She, she had long brown hair, but she had cut it off, and she had just sold it to a wig maker because she wanted to get her husband a Christmas gift. He had this beloved pocket watch and a train on it, and she wanted him to have a chain so he could hang it from his pocket. Now, this couple was poor. I mean, they lived in a tiny apartment. They didn't have any money for any sort of extravagant Christmas gifts. But what she didn't know was her husband was also working on getting a Christmas present for her. See, he wanted to get her these combs for her hair. And they were beautiful, and they were encrusted with these, these gems. So what did he do? He went and sold his pocket watch so he could get these combs for her. So think about what that would have been like when he comes home and sees his, his wife, Della, now. Her hair's all cut off. But with the finest gift her young husband could sacrifice to buy, it has now become useless. And, and Jim had no, no watch now to hang that chain on. But this is how that story closes up. This is from O. Henry himself. He says, Here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat, an apartment, who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these are the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts such as these, they are the wisest. And why is that? Because what lies behind that gift isn't the gift itself, but it's what? It's the sacrifice of what these people held very dear to give to someone. So he says that everywhere they are the wisest, this is the Magi. See, that's what they did. It wasn't so much about the gifts. It was the sacrifice behind them. See, sacrificial giving defines what it means to love each other. And these Magi Matthew's story were prompted by this kind of love to give that kind of worship. And our sacrificial worship and love of Jesus will produce true sacrificial love for each other. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we can't begin to understand the sacrifice that you made in coming to earth as a helpless infant as a toddler that had to grow in wisdom and stature, you willingly veiled your godness to come to earth to be one of us. Lord, I pray that we would show each other that kind of love and sacrifice. I pray that we would worship you with that kind of an attitude, that we are truly giving something up. We thank you for all that you've done for us, and we thank you for this season of Christmas. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. 
Amen. Grace and peace to you. Have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you for being here.